Welcome to Bench Talks, a science communication podcast brought to you by the Alexander von Humboldt Foundation and the International Journalist Programs. Two people on a bench, somewhere in Berlin. A researcher and journalist discuss current world events and the state of science communication. An unscripted conversation of two professions that often hardly have the time to engage in unplanned chat. Here, we take the luxury of drifting and dwelling in interdisciplinary space, which takes us to new perspectives for our global community. Hello, dear listeners. This is the second episode of The Bench Talk. And we're kind of hoping that the weather will keep it up. We're kind of worried there will be a thunderstorm. So eventually you might hear us running and you might hear some background noise, but hopefully that's not happening. But to quickly walk you through what's happening today. Again, it's two people talking. It's Daphne and my name is Sarah. So Daphne, my suggestion would be maybe you can just quickly walk our listeners through through what you are working on because it felt like a million things. So maybe just make it easy for people and, and quickly brief us what you're busy with. No problem. So hi everyone, my name is Daphne. I came to Berlin as a German Chancellor Fellow with the Humboldt Foundation and I work with digitalization and all aspects of digitalization. Recently, I've been developing uh, lots of work towards digitalization within gender, access and connectivity. I do some consulting work for the United Nations and I also work with a organization, a humanitarian organization here in Germany on the uh, refugee crisis and how we can integrate refugees through digitalization and digital inclusion. And what do you do, Sarah? Um, I think my description will be a bit shorter. <laughs> I am a freelance journalist, podcaster and foreign correspondent and I live in Amsterdam in the Netherlands since 2014. And my topics are mostly women's rights, LGBT rights and social injustice. And yeah, when we're not in the middle of a pandemic, I try to travel the world to investigate LGBT rights, for example. I was in Russia, I was in Lebanon. I also wrote about uh, child trafficking in Southeast Asia, for example. And I think we can break it down to, I usually write about the topics that people don't want to be confronted with. I think that's the, the easiest way to, to say it. Daphne, so you said digitalization, which is obviously not great in Germany. I think we can all agree on that. What were the issues, especially in the, the refugee crisis? If you can boil it down to like the top five, what were the main problems? Um, the, I would say that all problems that Germany has with digitalization within their own, uh, its own society also reflects with the refugee crisis. So if we, we do have issues with the health system because the health system is not digitized, we have to send fax, uh, we have to fax documents everywhere um, to get answers. Um, the refugee population would have the same issues as well. So coming to Germany, for instance, um, they had a hard time uh, getting their papers sorted out with the immigration officers. 
although there was a really good um, arrangement from the European Union to receive these refugees, um, but then again, it also stops at the local level and how the local level is prepared to process documents in a fast way, to have a website that is multilingual. And we are not talking, I'm not talking only about the latest refugee crisis with the, with the Ukrainian invasion by Russia, but let's go back to when we started receiving Syrian refugees or Afghani refugees. It was basically the same issues and these issues kept being repeated. Um, so the government knows there are, there are some hiccups, there are some loopholes, but there is simply not enough will to uh, indicate these hiccups and to, to target them. And that, that's really a shame. I think it's very kind of you that you call these hiccups, I think, because with me living in the Netherlands, I can really compare how things are handled in the Netherlands and in Germany when it comes to bureaucracy. And of course, also the recent refugee crisis with people from Ukraine has been a disaster in the Netherlands as well, because nobody knew where to start. But on the other hand, in the Netherlands, I see that at least important documents, for example, are available in translations, at least in English. Sometimes if people are lucky, it could be in Arabic, which is probably also because there are a lot of people from Morocco living in the Netherlands, for example. But I think, especially when it comes to, to documents and information, they are a bit ahead of Germany when it comes to providing information in different languages. Yeah. How are we fixing that? Like, are you currently working on specific ideas, how to implement things? Like, what are your, your daily tasks to improve this? So right now at my work, I'm working with this uh, coalition. There is an instrument, a legal instrument, that was promoted um, with the UNHCR, which is the UN agency responsible for refugees for uh, collecting the dots among different um, members for the promotion of inclusion of refugees, especially through financial inclusion and digital inclusion. Um, right now it's very incipient. Um, we had a backlash from the pandemic. So in all the countries involved, which were um, Germany, it was the government of Netherlands also involved, uh, Norway, the UK, and some other funding agencies. They were all very invested in tackling the pandemic, which makes sense. And now we are coming back to the discussions and having bilats and actually pointing out and saying, what is the current situation? You know, from 2017, 19 to now, also not just with the Ukraine crisis, but with the drought process and the Sahel crisis in Africa and the famine situation there. Um, in that region, by the end of the year, if we actually don't uh, have any intervention, people will die at like thousands of deaths in the region. So it's more than providing legal matters for people to actually know what they do, but actually influencing and making sure that what Germany does can be comparable to what Netherlands does. And these policies can then work uh, towards the same population. We do have, um, in my work with the rescue committee, we do have lots of examples from countries from the global south, for instance, 
that are facing refugees or displacement crisis, for instance, the Venezuelans in Colombia or in the Dominican Republic or also with Southeast Asia. And um, there are central banks, for instance, they have great solutions for how you tackle this. So in Dominican Republic, for instance, they have a huge population of um, uh, Venezuelans that went there as refugees. They cannot go back to the country because their passports are already expired, but still they can they are allowed to have uh, an ID and open bank accounts and then send money back home, even proving that the passport is expired because that's considered by the central bank as a proof. So it it depends also on the will of the government and the people that are around this trying to make solutions better. And in when you deal with displacement, there are so many issues, you know, and you have really to ponder what is the most important thing that I need to tackle now, and then we invest on that. And I, I'm a firm believer that everything follows if you do have free will from doing that. So when it comes to, to challenges, I assume there are always different challenges depending on the group of people. It could be queer people, it could be children, it could be women, it could be people with a different education level or a different social status or even an ethnical group depending on where they come from. So from my own experience, if we talk about the Netherlands for example, with refugees that came to the Netherlands, it was very often the men that came first and then the women followed after when he was already kind of settled. He had taken classes in Dutch, he maybe even had an employment at that point which led to the fact that the women were very often forgotten. Because mm -hmm. from the perspective of the Dutch states, if one person can provide for the family and has enough language skills to actually find a job, then they have covered their responsibilities. And the women are very often not in social groups, they don't have any contacts, they don't have any language skills and no chance on the labor market, which is really sad because they're pretty much isolated. Is this also something that you see when it comes to digitalization? Is this something that represents there? Um, that's interesting that you ask that because it actually depends on the region of the globe that I'm dealing with um, and with which kind of population, uh, of, of displaced population that I'm dealing with. So I can give you a few examples. Um, in, in Kampala, Uganda, like Uganda is one of the countries today that has one of the most advanced legislations for integration of refugees um, in the world. And we have we definitely have lots of good examples from Uganda. Um, and there, the refugees, they are allowed to leave the camps. They are allowed to integrate themselves uh, in the urban areas. They are allowed to move freely between urban and, and rural areas. Um, and at Rescue, we did a, a survey, a research for two years with some pilot programs about actually entrepreneurs of the region. And most of these entrepreneurs, refugees entrepreneurs, were women. Um, and they received a grant from Re Rescue and there was also a follow-up plan with these women on a finance budget, finance a business plan, and how they can invest the money. And uh, the research followed them for two years, actually not just build up, 
what they were planning on, but actually give them a condition that a long-term sustainability. Um, during our, I was really glad that during our um, our presentation, our launch program of this research, we had a few of these women there and they shared their expectations and how uh, they were really helped um, and how they actually felt uh, that they were humans again because they had this, uh, this help. But this unfortunately is not uh, happening in other places. So we do know also by our um, empirical work and also by research that women in displacement are the ones that are most affected. Um, if we get the, the Ukraine crisis, also because of the martial law in Ukraine, 80% of the people arriving uh, in Europe, in, in, in Germany, are women with their small children. Um, and then there's the language barrier, but there's also the barrier of what they can do. And because they do have the the, a new European policy that allows them to have residence and start working right away, that's not a big issue. But there are other aspects as well. So um, with countries and refugee crisis from places where women are already away from social life, this tends to replicate in the host countries as well. What people forget is giving a voice could also have some sort of healing effect mm -hmm. because trauma is based on the idea that people lost control of a situation, that something was overwhelming. So we could really support people by giving them control back, by not dictating the narrative, but actually having them in a position where they can decide what they want to say and that they can have their their stories be heard. But from from my experience, and this might also be a media problem, because media companies, after all, also want to make money. Mm -hmm. So it very often, and we also spoke about that yesterday, it is sensational journalism. As sorry as I am, but the topics that I cover do not sell very well, which is also a problem in journalism. These topics are so important. There's so many fantastic women out there or fantastic people in general out there that need their stories to be heard, that need the world to know what their problems and their issues and challenges are. But if it doesn't sell, I can do all the research and investigations that I want. If nobody publishes it, then I can put that piece on my wall at home in my living room and that's pretty much it. Which also goes for for LGBT rights, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. And that probably goes back to, to your previous question, because I work for an LGBT website. It's, it was started by a gay couple, and they obviously have certain destinations where they can't go to, or where they just refuse to go to for very good reason. So it is actually my job to go there and investigate the situation of, of LGBT people, and especially in Russia, my work was not appreciated, mm -hmm. like really not. So, and I'm very happy to to take one for the team, to take the bullet, to, to get these stories out. I just wish, and you probably feel the same thing in your work, that 
there was a higher budget for that and the world understood that there's a need for topics like that. Just, the world needs to know this and I just wished there was more awareness in the German authorities in general with governments, with budgets that were made available for these kind of projects because it really can make an impact even though it's not an economical one, but it can make an impact for children, it can make an impact for women, it can make an impact for the queer community. And then it just spreads from there because they will also, again, positively affect other people. Well, definitely. And, um, but just rest assured that you're already making a huge impact in the lives of the people that you're dealing with and Thank you're you. talking to. <laughs> um, I met you yesterday in person, but... <laughs> Because coming, we are both coming from the Com Lab, so everything was being virtual. So it's good to meet in person as well. And I already know that you are making a huge impact. I was curious to know, um, within your job as a journalist and with the investigations you've been doing, um, and I also know from other colleagues that are journalists and friends who are in the same topic that. Dealing with PTSD is an issue, but most and above all is you never know the kind of situation that you're going to find when you get to the scene and to the, to the field. And would you be comfortable to talk about some situation that has repeated in a sense that there should be some kind of acting upon it? Or we can also move on with the subject as well, if you don't feel comfortable about it. No, I think it's it's important to talk about that. It's maybe not my, my favorite topic, but it affects a lot of colleagues of mine. So I guess we, we need to talk about this. Um, so hate speech against female journalists mm -hmm. online is a huge problem. And also safety issues when it comes to, to freelancers, mm -hmm. that goes for Germany as well as for the Netherlands. Because personally, and I will make it short, I was investigating on the topic of Zwarte Piet in the Netherlands, which is black-facing. It's a racist figure of white people painting their faces black and playing the help of Santa Claus in December. That's pretty much what it is. And it's not only painting their faces black, they also wear an Afro wig and they paint their lips red and they wear golden hoops and as earrings and you get the idea. The incomplete stereotype. Yes. <laughs> no black person ever looked like that, but for some reason that stereotype keeps going on and on for centuries. Anyway, I was investigating that online. I was asking if there was any uh, anti-Svartepeat and pro-Svartepeat activists willing to talk to me. It could be done anonymously. And I did that in a monitored group and they already told me that's not a good idea that you're doing that. The group itself told you, the, the, yeah. the people that came to talk to you told you that. Yeah, the person that was supposed to moderate the, the discussions, they already said, please keep an eye on that. This will blow up in like a heartbeat. I did and she wasn't lying. So... I think it took two minutes, I had like 80 comments and people were personally attacking me, people were saying that they want to rape sense into me, people were referring to my German heritage, saying like using a, a Dutch slur for a German person, that I should mind my own business, these kind of things. 
And unfortunately, in the Netherlands, freelance journalists also need to register at the Chamber of Commerce with an address. Mm -hmm. And I work from home, which means it's my private address. So my private address got out there with groups where I really don't want that address to be. So I received calls at night on my phone. Someone was ringing our doorbell at night. And I was, I mean, I was not worried about myself, not as much, but my flatmate, she is black. And I was really worried if we have some, some people standing in front of our house that she could get attacked. And she has really nothing to do with that. Mm -hmm. She just happens to live with me. And very often, also when it comes to anti-vaxxers and other kind of protests in, in Germany or the Netherlands, this is passed as freedom of speech, which is not. I very much value freedom of speech and I very much value press freedom, but I also believe people have the right to not get hurt. So my personal rights end where the, per, the rights of another person start. And this is what people tend to forget. So especially in the Netherlands, it's very often understood as meanings outing, so freedom of expression, and then people can just say whatever they want. Okay, so if I insult you, it's I'm protected by law. That's what, that's what they think. That's also how it's done, actually. There, okay. has, been, there has been a case of um, a man in Rotterdam publicly insulting women with sexist slurs. So he would call random women a whore on the street or a slut or these kind of things. And some women went to court and the judge actually decided that this is freedom of expression because a whore is a profession. What? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah, things haven't changed. I mean, your uh, thank you so much for opening up on this. Uh, it's not everybody that does it and especially not in all the settings that people actually do it. Um, Throughout my one of the projects that I worked with digitalization was um, actually managing uh, gender policies and how that can tackle online gender-based violence and how we can actually um, at least come to online platforms, for instance, and and try to show to them that there must be a change on their terms of service so they can curb this behavior. And uh, so the organization I was working at, at this time, we had uh, several pilot uh, programs and several different conversations. And I, we did have one specifically with women politicians and women journalists, and it was the most um, exhausting one of all the conversations we had. Because these uh, career paths, these women working on this, they get extra slurs and they are extra called out on the internet just because of the fact that they are women. Um, and there was also some um, good Brazilian reports that were done around the last uh, election times. So we do have elections now in October, but before, um, 2020, we also did have elections uh, on the city level, and there was uh, some reports about the frequency of um, sexual and racial slurs being directed at uh, women candidates on Twitter, and it's horrendous. It was uh, an average of 
if if I might be wrong on the numbers, but it was arranged that they had collected more than forty five thousand um, terms being directed only because the women they were women, and um, still with all this evidence we still couldn't get to the bottom of the problem with the platforms and and actually telling them and they know that there's a problem like in this previous organization we had weekly meetings with facebook whatsapp with the entire meta organization now uh, with twitter reddit and they know they have these issues but they just don't want to, to tackle them and when they do want to tackle they would go for uh, big markets and markets where they know that if they don't do anything, they will incur in huge fines. For example, Western Europe now with the new GDPR, the US sort of, but most in the cases, they actually withdraw tools that we do have in Europe that can guarantee our protection somewhat. And um, if you fly, like in your case, you fly a lot for investigations. If you fly to another country, this tool will be disabled there. And um, that's a huge issue as well. I actually think it's a, a global issue because they did the same thing in the Netherlands looking uh, at Twitter during the last election. I think it was 2020. Don't quote me on that. It could be wrong. But uh, they also collected hate tweets against female politicians. And then you also had different layers. So it was not only that it was women, but also one of the women is from Suriname, she's black. Another woman wears a hijab. And this is huge. And it feels like governments have been covering their eyes and ears for decades now. And now the problem is too big that they don't even know where to start anymore. And I really have to say, I'm losing my patience here because these issues, maybe not exact same ones, but comparable issues have probably been around already with our mother's generations. Mm -hmm. And I'm really thinking I'm done with asking for change nicely. We have tried asking nicely and it's obviously not working. So can we please fix this now? Yes, I agree. I just feel that um, since the internet is so wide, it has really amplified what our mothers and our grandmothers have have gone through and if during those times they had just to suffer in silence this is also a tool for us not to suffer in silence and put this up there but I I do share the frustration with you um, I really love working with the internet and digitalization I can see everything that this can like all the marvelous changes it can bring to people's lives and but at the same time I also feel very sad for how sick it can be and how people can use it in the wrong way but isn't it like with all inventions you know I I sometimes have to ponder myself it's like oh yeah I really like to fly but you know warplanes so you know it's sometimes I, I need to rem remind myself of these things that it's not just completely good or completely bad and that's why we need to always be alert but again being a woman being a migrant woman um, and all the categories that come from being a migrant woman and being considered a person of color in in the global north 
it's such a big heavy weight on the shoulders working with digitalization working in a space that is male dominated white male dominated um, and the fact that there are also women in this space that replicate this dominance um, because they also have to survive and that's the way they found to be there um, so it's tiring and um, it also can lead to PTSD it can also lead to burnout um, but it's I just feel that it's also my passion it's also something that I want to leave a legacy and a purpose for the whoever comes after me that I, I have at least changed a bit of the situation yeah. I think this just really boils down to to male entitlements Definitely. this boils down to the idea that women owe you sex or that women owe you attention or that women owe you a laugh about your bad joke it really that's the core of it and this is what a lot of radical groups not only Islamic radical groups, but also alt-right uses, um, especially with, with alt-right fascist groups. They have this narrative that with the refugee crisis, we have the Arab men coming in, stealing our women. Like that's that narrative that a certain group of women is the property of a certain group of men. And if we don't stick with that certain group, we're doing something wrong and therefore deserve to be hated. I think this is really the narrative. And as long as we do not fix that offline, I'm afraid there will be new hornet's nests coming up all over the internet over and over again. You made a really good point about the, the far right. Um, so in Brazil, it's as in the US, um, our far right is really connected to evangelical churches and then the power of patriarchy is even more widespread because it's not just that you see someone on television a politician telling you that you should really be at home and take care of your husband and your kids for the good of the society but also it's exactly what you listen when you go to the church every Sunday and what you see around and if there is some cases of abuse or mistreatment you just need to be quiet because that's the way things are has been done have been done for ages and that's how the society should pre prevail um, it, it has bothered me even before the latest elections how this growth of the evangelical church and the dominance of politics uh, through the evangelical church and the patriarchy uh, system that it carries um, has invaded Brazilian politics and Brazilian society in a sense um, we talked lots about it yesterday and how that influences upbringing um, and different upbringing from between girls and boys not just about oh you're a girl probably going to be a nurse or something like that but actually instilling from an early age that you are inferior that because you were not born male um, and I think that also brings us back to the internet and, and media because if you have 
a society that's so focused on a certain position of women or a certain place of women, when women actually dare to step out of that and dare to speak up, the backlash is even higher. Definitely. Which can be scary. I can tell it, it is really scary. So I also understand every woman that says at some point, I'm, I'm done with this, I'm not doing this anymore. I, I can't do this anymore. Because if you receive so much negative feedback, at some point you notice I cannot fight every single day. So, no. and then they probably go back to the place where men thought from the beginning that the women belong. Okay, Sarah. So, we've talked a lot so far. <laughs> and if we could, we would talk for more four or five hours, I'm sure. Probably, yeah. Um, but unfortunately, we have to move on. And before we move on and go on with our lives and enjoy the park today, I was wondering if we could uh, finish this conversation on a good note. And I was really eager to know from all your trips, all your investigations, what was the positive side of things that you could you saw that could be changed in maybe it was not even a global change but maybe a local one that really would impact people and um, that then whoever is listening to us might then think this is also a good idea and then they can, can come back to us and say yes let's put it this in practice I think I have a very good example for that and I will just use a quote of a woman that's a lot smarter than I am. I'm not sure if Michelle Obama originally said it or she used it from someone else, but she said so many things in the world could be corrected if women and girls had the chance to live up to their full potential. And I strongly believe that. And I personally have seen that it does not have to be a global initiative. It can also be a very, very small thing. Yeah. And I see it with myself. Because in Amsterdam, I teach kickboxing, self-defense, and Krav Maga to teenage girls. Oh, I want to learn that. Yeah, I've join always, my class. I've always <laughs> wanted to learn that because I think that I'm sometimes very, like, scary of things. So I think if I go through, like, some personal challenges yeah. or a fight, I'll get very courageous on that. I will make topic. you badass. Yeah. I will. <laughs> because uh, it was started by um, an organization that's called Project Fearless and they purposely target teenage girls because the founder, she said, when girls are like below that age of 10, we try everything. We are brave. We are confident in who we are. And then society comes in and tells us, no, that's what boys do. No, that's not girly. You're supposed to be nice. You're supposed to be not loud. You're supposed to do that instead. And then girls get insecure by what they're supposed to do according to society and what they actually feel like doing. So they have projects like skateboarding for girls, or I do the kickboxing. And then I also started um, doing these classes in a neighborhood in Amsterdam that has a high, percentage, a high percentage of migrants mm -hmm. and I do this for women only so we had to find a location where the women would come so no man could see it and it's a lot of women from um, Syria I believe from Morocco so a lot of Arab women and sometimes I just do 
one weekend with them and it's so fantastic and amazing and inspiring and rewarding to see the difference that it makes. I give them classes that are maybe like four hours and these women are badass. We just need to remind them that they are. They are so strong, they're so fit, they're so smart about certain situations but they don't know that, they don't realize that. They don't know how strong they are, how, how good they can be in certain things. And sometimes it just needs one tiny person like me to just remind them of that. And it can make a huge difference because they will tell their daughters, their nieces, their sisters, their mothers, the friends of their daughters. And this could be something really, really big. So I think what we can also try to keep in mind when we just get really frustrated maybe we do not see the impact but the impact is definitely there yes so that was my motivational speech and that was your turn <laughs> i'm i'm motivated already yeah nice. I, do, I do think that all women just by being born women we are so badass asses you know and um you know, it's we are born women and we are already born with guilt. And depending where you are in the world, that can get even worse. Um, so throughout all my, I would say, even my personal life and uh, uh, a life of a migrant woman as well, um, that tends to be a bit hard, just a bit, to put it on the, on the, the bright side. Um, and also on, on my career, there's always has to be, I've always had to deal with this idea of reaffirming myself. And if some, someone would do things 100%, myself, a woman, would, not, would need to do it 200%, 300% for the reassurance that you are doing it right and those ideas are yours. And nobody else is going to steal them. And that, yes, you need to be there. And you need to have your voice heard. So for some part of my career, I try to act like a man. And try to po impose myself being a man. And then I realized that the best thing to me was actually to act myself. And be myself as a woman with the with the story that I have, the life story that I have, with the, the history that I bring from my parents, my ancestors, and being here, and actually posing that also as my differential in life. And if I do, if, if I have reached um, the, the positions that I've had, and if the Humboldt Foundation has trusted me to also do research for them, is because they trusted that I'm a diverse, a diverse person, and that diversity will bring also different aspects and different points of view into a world that usually sees things black and white in a very traditional world uh, sense. Because for the longest time, that's what we've been conditioned to. And um, so I still struggle sometimes with this, this, create, this upbringing of, oh, you're not allowed to do everything because you were a girl. But I try to keep up and uh, to take advantage of time now because time is all we have and I'm not gonna be stopping now. So I really do think that 
I'm gonna remember myself so how much I am a badass when <laughs> I'm love feeling <laughs> when I'm feeling frustrated at work with a lot of things. Yes, but then you but then what you do? If you want to cry, you cry. That's not a problem. You, you take a rest, you sleep, and the next day you come back rested and you go on with the fight, because that's what we're gonna take further. And we still have a lot of things to do. But even if we do a small impact with our neighbors, with our friends, uh, with my colleague next door, that's already a, a good impact. And one thing that somebody else told me, just to finish it off, a mentor once told me, is that we never know who's watching us. And you, we never know who actually is observing what we do. And again, we never know when uh, these people will come to us and offer us solutions, will extend uh, the hand and will then follow up or walk with us. So it's always good to, to be aware of that as well. Absolutely. I love the talk. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you. Bench Talks is a part of the Communication Lab, a joint program of the Alexander von Humboldt Foundation and the International Journalist Programs. Voiceover by Amy Leibowitz. Editing by Ellery Studio.